Welcome to the Meet the Maker podcast, where we explore themes around creativity, craftsmanship, and collaboration. My name is Bob Mitten, and today I'm talking to one of Europe's most acclaimed editorial designers, Mark Porter. Mark started out working as an art director for the Evening Standard, and iconic magazines like Wired and Colours. But his career really took off when he joined The Guardian and became creative director. In his 10 years there, Mark created a design philosophy and style for The Guardian, which helped them become one of the world's most recognizable news organizations. In 2010, he founded Mark Porter Associates, design consultancy working in digital, print, and television. He has worked with some of the world's best-loved media brands, as well as independent publishers and charities. The audience is at the heart of Mark's work, and he believes that good design can drive engagement, loyalty, and love. Mark has won many prestigious awards for his work, and it has been shown in numerous exhibitions and galleries. We really enjoy talking in detail about some of these groundbreaking projects, and having shared a studio for many years, we are delighted to be able to share some of those stories with you. Hello, Mark. Thank you very much for doing this. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. So I thought we'd start with where you started in terms of your university, you studied languages at Oxford, so not a conventional start to a career in design. Why and how did you get into (laughs) design? And how did you learn your craft? Well, it was an interesting journey. Um, I went to a very academic school where I wasn't allowed to do art after the age of about 14 because they packed my timetable with academic subjects. So I was kind of put on that path with my formal education. But I was always interested in art and design. I mean, I used to love to draw as a child. It was all about the drawing. And then when I was at school, I drew illustrations for the school magazine, which led on to designing the school magazine. And I used to make posters at school and university for plays and events and stuff, which from my point of view was mainly about the drawing. I would do an elaborate illustration and then there'd have to be some information around it. So I would hand letter or letter set the typography around it. But I was always really interested in it. And I always loved magazines. My parents were observer readers in the Observer magazine. I used to pour over every Sunday. So I ended up coming out of the university still really interested in design and kind of wishing I could do design, but without any sort of portfolio that would enable me to get a job in design, which was frustrating. But I ended up taking a job just to make a bit of money, really, on a very small magazine in the commercial department. They were looking for somebody who spoke Spanish. So I took a job just basically to to make some pocket money. And it was a very small magazine. And in the nicest possible way, it was quite amateurish. And I was looking at a lot of other magazines at the time because I love magazines. So I was, you know, the face at that time was really booming. And so I was looking around a lot of magazines and I redesigned that magazine in my own time and went to the editor and said, your magazine looks really old fashioned. It should look like this. And I was very lucky that they agreed and accepted it. I mean, it wasn't very good because I was very inexperienced. It was very derivative because I think a lot of young designers start out by imitating things they like, which is not a bad way to start because it teaches you a bit about how things fit together. So they put me in charge of design at that very small magazine and that what I did there enabled me to get a job on a proper magazine with a serious art director and that's kind of where my design education really started so I think most of what I've learned I've learned from working with brilliant people and I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing creative directors and art directors the other thing is of course this was pre-internet days and because I'd been very used at school and university to kind of doing my own research I taught myself an enormous amount from books. I just bought loads of books about graphic design and typography, and it was before the Mac, so I taught myself how to specify typesetting and stuff just from reading books and things, which is how I was in a position to do a magazine redesign, but that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. And then from those sort of jobs, because I wanted to sort of come on to the garden, you yeah. went to work at a number of different magazines before. Yeah, I worked in, in various different magazines. Luckily, most of them with really high design standards and brilliant art directors. And the most exciting thing that happened to me probably was after I'd worked at the Evening Standard, I got the chance to go and do a magazine called Colours with Tibor Kalman. Uh, so I went to live in Rome 
while I was doing that, Tibor was living in Rome, and uh, learned an enormous amount from him. I mean, he was obviously a very influential, uh, iconoclastic, you know, eccentric designer. Uh, drove us all crazy a lot of the time, but yeah, I learned a lot from that. And then I came back and actually was asked to help my friend Simon Esterson, who was the head of design at The Guardian then, help him on a redesign of Guardian Weekend, the weekly magazine. And in those days, they didn't have a design department. It was all put together by the journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did that redesign and I went in for the first couple of weeks to kind of show them how it worked and somehow never left. And then a few years later, Simon left and I got the opportunity to step up and become creative director of The Guardian. So it led on from the magazine work. Yeah. So let's talk about The Guardian uh, yeah. because it's, I mean, it's quite close to my heart because my start of my professional career was a pentagram. David Hillman was redesigning The Guardian. Right. The first so time. you worked on that project? I, I was working oh, on the side. I didn't work on it. Right. Anne Fletcher was doing the v logo yeah. at the same time. <laughs> so we'll come to that in a minute. But it was a seminal piece of design when it came out. You know, for me, it yes. was a sort of a, wow, this is a significant piece of design in the industry. Yeah. Then many years later, you come along, yeah. and I wanted to come along and see, understand how you did it. But yeah. the Guardian then does the Berliner format again, yeah. a very significant piece of design. Is that something that you think is embedded within the Guardian and some of the newspapers and magazines, or do you think it really comes from, you know, you and like David and some of the key? Designers, I think it's a bit of both, really. I mean, the project that I did probably couldn't have happened unless David had done his project because that had been the start of building a design culture at The Guardian. And you know very well that some organizations have a design-friendly culture and some don't. I mean, obviously, the iconic example is Apple. It's the most successful company in the world. And the reason it's the most successful company in the world is it embraced design from day one. So, you know, The Guardian became a place that cared about design which sort of facilitated my project. So I think it's probably a mixture of the two. But I think, you know, when David did his project, it was much harder. And that was really just the vision of Peter Preston, who was the editor at that time, to make a bold decision and let the designers in and accept what David proposed, which at the time was quite radical. But of course, when I came along and circumstances had changed, the newspaper business was very different. That design, because it had become so well-known and so celebrated and so loved, it was quite brave to say, we're gonna go away from that completely. And in fact, we didn't go away from it completely at the first step, so I can explain a bit about that. But yeah, that was like a kind of heavy weight on my back while I was doing the project. And after the project came out, you know, David was not happy, made it clear that he wasn't happy and he didn't think that I was the right person to do it. So there was always the shadow of that project on my project. And I think, you know, if you're taking on something that is a a well-loved and iconic piece of design, if you change it, you've got to be very careful and be absolutely sure you're doing the right thing and take it very seriously. What David did and what you did effectively became the brand identity for that organisation. That's how it came across to me. And you are shifting that and that David's iconic design whether you like it or not, was very iconic and and you did the same thing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, when David came in, I think that was probably the first time that someone who really had that kind of brand design thinking got into the newspaper world. Maybe not 100% because of people like Lou Silverstein at the New York Times, brilliant designer who'd also done other things. But, you know, his thinking like that italic V and then the bold Guardian, he saw that as a kind of, branding device that could be the whatever. And and, um, it was used quite successfully. So, you know, it was quite prescient really to think that a newspaper had to think like a brand. Because I think in those days, nobody really felt like that about newspapers. They kind of sold themselves really. And they were kind of tribal, you know, you're a Guardian reader, you're a Telegraph reader or whatever. Um, So he kind of did that before anyone in the newspaper business realized that it was necessary. But yeah, we had to do very much the same thing. And we did it at a moment when the internet was about to explode. And that's probably what I'm proudest of from that project was that we did it really as a piece of newspaper design, but because we did it in such depth with such kind of systematic thinking, what we actually created was a brand design system, which could be applied to 
the internet could be applied to events and lots of other things. And it's still pretty much what the Guardian's using now, although elements have changed, but that kind of thinking continues. And I like to believe that it's one of the reasons the Guardian was able to make such a leap into digital publishing and be so successful all over the world was that it did have this really strong, recognizable visual identity. And, you know, a lot of editorial brands aren't that recognizable. I think, so, you know, again, that edit, idea of you being an editorial designer, and I noticed on your site, you, know, you yeah. put editorial and sort of brand. Yeah. But I think what you're doing is you are creating that brand, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, there's the sort of two sides to editorial design, really. And the, the, the first half of my career has mainly been about one of them. And the second half of my career has mainly been about the other one. The first one is just, you know, being a visual journalist and telling stories. So, you know, if you're the art director of a magazine, your job is to take the stories and visualize them, decide, you know, what's the best way to tell the story visually? Is it photography, illustration, commissioning your collaborators, putting a layout together that sort of engages the audience and dealing with kind of narrative. But when you're doing a redesign like that, and this is the kind of work that we almost exclusively do now, you're really creating a design system, which in many ways is like the kind of design systems that you create for brands that aren't content-based. So, you know, the, the narrative storytelling content-based side of editorial design is one thing, and the kind of design systems and brand identity thing is the, the other face of it, really. And, you know, in the, you can combine them, but generally the, the first part is the stuff that you do if you're kind of embedded in-house working directly with the journalists. And what we tend to do is create these kind of systems that other people implement. So when we're doing brand work, Part of it is about what I call the magic, yeah. the inspiration bit. But part of it is about the logic, the yeah. strategy, the business direction for the business. Is that something you that happened at Guardian? Is that something you felt you're, that's very much an important part of what you do now? Yes, yes, very much. I mean, I feel like, you know, perhaps people who are outside the business or young people starting out in the business don't really grasp how much of running a professional design practice is not about having inspiration and, you know, ideas, brilliant ideas coming out of nowhere and dealing with, you know, color and imagery and stuff. First of all, it's about, you know, most of the people we work with have business problems of one sort or another, you know, they're in an industry, which in our case tends to be media. Um, they have ambitions to grow or to uh, approach a different type of audience. You know, the, the, there's a lot of strategic thinking going on within the business that makes them understand that they need the help of a design consultant. And we have to be able to engage with all that and, you know, address them on terms that they understand and think through that kind of process. And in a way, that's why I sometimes feel that going to Oxford wasn't actually a bad training for being a graphic designer because you know every week i was given an assignment where i had to go away do my own research assemble it into a kind of logical order present it to my tutor and those are exactly the kind of things i have to do now you know i have to understand what my clients are doing who their competitors are what their history is put all that together into a kind of solution i have to present it to them in a convincing form that they will understand, so they accept it. And, uh, you know, the, obviously the the visual side of it and the, what you call the magic, the kind of what most people think of as creativity is equally important. But, you know, you can't have that without the other thing. Yeah, no, I, I think it's essential. And often a bigger part of the project I'm noticing now is the, the strategy and the, yep. and the logic and the helping often to sell it and helping to sort of get everybody on board and behind it because yes. and what you're doing, what you do with a lot of the publications you're working with, which are icons or, you know, people are very sensitive about some of their the projects you're dealing with. I can just imagine, you know, people phoning in and saying, you've moved the crossword <laughs> to the... Yeah, well, the crossword actually is the most sensitive thing. <laughs> That's one of the things that I always say to clients, never move the crossword. 
because yeah, people get very upset. No, it's, it's very true. I mean, David used to do a great talk where he showed some of the letters that he'd got after the Guardian redesign, or that the editor had got, including one from Spike Milligan saying, "Got the comic? Where's the newspaper?" and things like that. Actually, the the really amazing thing about our Guardian redesign was we got absolutely zero negative comments from the audience. I think that was because it had come at the end of a period of kind of turmoil in British newspapers when The Independent and The Times had both gone tabloid without telling the audience that they were going tabloid. You know, there'd been a lot going on and the Guardian design came as a kind of relief because it wasn't just something that appeared overnight with no thought going into it. So I can't take all the credit for it. But yeah, it's still quite a lot of what we do. There's negative responses. And of course, now that we live in a digital age, it's much easier to just fire off an email than it is to write a letter to the editor. It's even easier to go on Twitter and flame somebody's project. I'm sure we've all experienced it. But, you know, we are privileged and proud to be able to work with some of these people. And it particularly came home to me doing The Guardian because my father was a Guardian reader. We were a Guardian reading household. I used to do the Guardian crossword with him when I was 12 years old. Um, so it wasn't just a professional job. You know, I was really emotionally engaged with that. And I think probably it was that that really helped me understand that when you deal with these things like The Guardian or, you know, The New Statesman or The Volkskrant in the Netherlands, which is like The Guardian of Holland or Berlingske in Copenhagen, which is one of the oldest newspapers in Europe, it's like nearly 300 years old. People don't just buy these like they buy toothpaste. You know, they have emotional relationships with them. You're, they're f kind of friends to the audience. So you have to keep an awareness of that in your work and you have to approach it with a degree of humility and take the responsibility seriously. Not too seriously, obviously, because most of the time you're being asked to change things. And as you say, the client's very nervous about change. Change is not an easy thing for anybody and you're the person who has to convince them to change. So you can't be intimidated by it, but you do have to take it seriously. And yeah, a large part of our role is kind of helping clients embrace change and understand change. And, you know, it's interesting the, the way the process goes. When they first call you up or you have your early meetings with them, whatever, everybody says, oh yeah, we need to change. You know, we're very keen on change. And then as soon as they actually see what you're proposing, there's that moment when it becomes real and then they start to change, you know, how they feel changes. Suddenly knowing that it's really going to happen and it's going to look like this, that's always a difficult moment. But, you know, that's what we do, isn't it? So Hannah was uh, reading an article about, you talked about data and yeah. behaviour and how people behave and what they say they're going to do, yeah. what, how they read, and then analysing data and doing the yeah. research. I'd just be interested to hear you talk about when you're, when you're starting a project, how do you do that research and how do you start to uncover the situation and the issues and problems? Well, we tend to get involved in things, as I say, once the client has decided that something has to change for the future. And often they've done their own research already. So they've done some kind of audience research or whatever. And, you know, that, that's always useful up to a point. Um, I'm quite sceptical as a rule about focus groups because... I think there's just a dynamic in focus groups that leads people to say what makes them look good rather than what they really think. There's also can be a dynamic where somebody kind of dominates the conversation and then everyone else falls in line and, and goes along with them. So I'm a little skeptical about focus groups, more kind of quantitative research and other types of quantitative research I'm, you know, I find useful sometimes. But what's really changed for us is the digital work that we do. And partly in terms of audience research, you know, digital audience research tends to be putting somebody in front of a screen and actually watching what they do. So it's not what they say they're going to do or what they say they think. It's how they actually behave. That's incredibly useful. But of course, the other discipline with digital is you can see exactly how many people are coming to the site, which things they're clicking on, what pages they're looking at, how long they're staying. And you know, we never used to know that. So we would design a newspaper or a magazine. And you could look at circulation figures. So you're selling more. Well, that's a good thing. But that might be to do with the stories. Might not be to do with your work. See people reading it on the bus. Think, oh, that's good. They're reading that thing I designed. So it must be readable up to a point, And they must be something they like about it. But it was always just a kind of guess, really, an instinct. 
And now we have probably too much data about the things that we design because the client can come back and say, you designed this thing for me. And you know the bounce rate has gone up or the dwell time has gone down or whatever. Luckily that doesn't usually happen to us. Usually the, the traffic goes up and all those metrics are looking good. But you know it is a real new discipline. And I think it's been quite hard for a lot of designers and particularly people like me who started off in one type of work where you didn't have that kind of input and discipline to adapt. You know, we always used to be able to just say, well, look, I'm the expert. You just got to listen to me and this is what I do. And this is the right thing for you. And now they have proof whether it's the right thing or not, which is kind of scary really. But, uh, you know, I think it makes us better designers in the end. And that digital side of things, you know, you are and obviously every project you do now, I'm assuming, you know, you're thinking you're looking at the full spectrum. Pretty much, yeah. Do you enjoy that or is it just something you think actually um, you just have to embrace it? Or? I do enjoy it. There's been times when I haven't enjoyed it. I suppose I got into digital fairly early. I mean, my first digital project was the Guardian website in the mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I'd finished doing the, the newspaper, we started on the website. Um, and that was, you know, things were more primitive in those days. There was much less you could do in terms of typography and layout and stuff on web pages. Mobile wasn't a thing. So we had big canvases to work on. We didn't have to work on the primarily on the, the small canvas. But I went through a lot of ups and downs of kind of um, moments of despair where I was thinking, I'm never going to get this, or I have to forget everything I've learned in the last 15 years about design and start learning all over again to moments where it was like, oh yeah, I'm getting this. And actually it's really exciting because we can do different things. But you know, the parameters are so different. I think probably the biggest difference is the fact that when we're designing for print or even, you know, when you're designing a chair or a building or whatever, there's only gonna be one of them or you know what size it's gonna be. You can define everything about it. And if you're designing a magazine, once the ink hits the paper, that's it, it can never change. But when we're designing for digital, people are looking at it on all sorts of screens in all sorts of browsers. Um, some people may be using ancient browsers that can't use web fonts or whatever. So you have to design things which are adaptable and responsive and mutable. Um, and that's quite difficult, really, because by nature, I think most designers strive for perfection in every detail. That's when we think we've done a good job, when every detail is perfect. But you can never get every detail perfect in digital. So, you know, you're kind of, every digital project is a compromise in a sense, which is frustrating, but it's super exciting too, because it's constantly developing. You're having to learn new things all the time. And that, you know, I love that, that you can be in the same business for 30 years and still be learning something new every day. That's really great. And it's just given, vast new audiences to most of our clients who wouldn't have been there before for the print product. So that makes it super exciting too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when you're tackling, uh, somebody comes to you with a project, so you've mentioned, what was it, the, the Berlinska in, the, in, in Copenhagen, Copenhagen, Copenhagen yeah. or any of these sort of projects you, you work with, as I say, sort of icons, vast amounts of content, yeah. a lot of emotional connection. There's so much you've yes. got to sort of think about What's your what's your start? What have you found works best in terms of your starting points, and how do you work through it? Well, I guess most things start with a conversation or a meeting with a client where they tell you what their goals and ambitions are, and uh, you know it's unfortunate that for the last kind of ten fifteen years, a lot of the clients that we're dealing with in the media are looking for help because their circulation is going down or their audience is going down. And that, you know, really just because traditional media has been cannibalized by digital media. But generally, you know, the client has an idea about what they want, which is super important. It's not always what they think they want is not always what it turns out they need, but that's always a good starting point. And then whenever we're working with someone who does have that kind of history and heritage and sort of importance in the culture, we always try really hard to familiarize ourselves with the history. So one of the first things that I do on a project like Berlingska or indeed Nature or um, New Statesman or a lot of the magazines and newspapers that we've worked with is go into the archive and look at how they started and how they developed up until now 
And of course, you know, design habits and design trends have changed enormously. So it's not like you see things there often that you can think can be used in the new design, but it just gives you a real understanding of who they are and where they're coming from. And they'll often have some research, as we said, and then you begin to get a better idea of how their audience sees them. In some cases, they want to look different or to feel different to their audience. Some cases, they're looking for another audience, in which case you're looking at the kind of media that that audience is consuming and trying to see how you can adopt some of those kind of behaviors and bring it to your client and so on. So really, you know, it is research. Extensive research is the, the sort of bedrock of every project that we do. And then there's a kind of weird alchemy where if you do enough research, ideas just somehow start to happen. I wish I knew how it came about, but I don't, you know. So And, and sometimes, very, very rarely, actually, like maybe one project out of kind of 40, there's an image in your head that's like, this should be bold, black type on a yellow background or whatever. Most of the time, it's just crafting an iteration and trying 20 different things and taking the best two and then pushing them in a different direction and doing something else. But it all builds up on that bedrock of, of research. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a bit about typefaces. Sure. <laughs> Quite important. Yeah. So. Um, uh, many, many years ago, I remember reading an article about Vignelli saying, oh, you only need about five typefaces or something like that. Yeah. And obviously, typefaces are so crucial to everything that you do. And and I can't remember how many you commissioned for The Guardian, but it was quite a few. I th well, it's, it, I think they called it one typeface with 200 fonts in the end because there was the serif and the sans serif, there were all the Romans and the italics, there were multiple weights. There was a special, what they call an agate for readability at small sizes that was used for the sports results and the stock market tables and stuff. So yeah, I think it ended up being over 200 variants in the end. Yeah, that Vinelli quote, I mean, I saw him speak not long before he died and you know, incredible work, complete magisterial figure in the industry. And, you know, I admire him in so many ways, but I just think he was completely wrong. <laughs> and I think that's a kind of thinking that evolved when he was doing identities in New York in the 1960s, when, you know, American Airlines used Helvetica and Coke used Helvetica. And, you know, it was quite hard work to find another typeface because they were all made out of metal or, you know, photo lettering or whatever. And I sort of appreciate the theory that the idea is what matters and you know it's the execution that matters and the typeface isn't the most important thing i can go along with that but particularly when you're making identities as you and i do type is incredibly important and tibor used to say typefaces are like voices people have different voices your friends voices are familiar to you and you recognize them and that's why I think typefaces are incredibly important in identities. They become recognizable and we respond to them in the way that we respond to voices. So every project that we do, we think very hard about type. I'm lucky enough to know a lot of great type designers. I know best the guys at Commercial Type, Paul Barnes and Christian Schwartz, who did the Guardian project and have done a lot of projects with me. But I also know a lot of other type designers. So when we start out, on a new project, what I usually do is just get in touch with everyone I know who makes type and say, have you got anything new in the pipeline? And sometimes there's things that are not released yet or just have been released or whatever, uh, which are good. And sometimes you can't find anything that's quite right. And then if the budget allows, you're lucky enough to be in a position to commission something new, which you know we have done quite successfully on several occasions. And the interesting thing is the way that so many of the typefaces we've commissioned for editorial, like the Guardian typeface and uh, another typeface called Publico, which we commissioned for a newspaper in Lisbon, in Portugal, have gone on to be used you know, by thousands of different clients. And they usually go through this period of being used, first of all, for other uses that are quite close to what they were designed for. So a lot of other newspapers used the Guardian typeface. A lot of other newspapers used Publico. In fact, Publico became the most common 
newspaper typeface in the world. The Evening Standard was using it. The 10 newspapers in the US were using it. Svenska Dagbladet was using it. But then they go on and have another life. So I think Guardian Egyptian's being used by UPS, is it? But, you know, with big brands like insurance companies and multinational courier companies and stuff. So it just goes to show that a well-designed typeface can have a lot of different uses. So, yeah, type design is the business to be in, really, because you can do the project and then sell it again and again and again. I think we're in the wrong business because we can only get paid once for the work that we do. So when you're, uh, it's interesting to hear that you sort of, you're phoning around trying to find something new. Yes. So it's just interested to hear about, because there's obviously thousands of typefaces out there. Why are you pushing for that, looking for that something new? Why wouldn't you, for example, look around all the thousands of typefaces and adapt one or take one? Well, we do that too. You know, it's not like we always look for something new. It's a, it's a mix, really. I suppose it's partly just when you personally have worked a lot with existing typefaces, you want to work with a new material, I suppose. It's maybe like, you know, a sculptor or something who's used to working with marble and granite and wants to try something else. You just, you know, different possibilities open up when you use something you've never used before. But, you know, we do things using classic typefaces as well. And, you know, some of the projects we're working on at the moment are using a mix of like things that have been around for a while and, and new things that have just come out. So, yeah, obviously, it's sort of good practice to see if there's something out there that works first. I suppose a lot of what we do, because it's in a particular field, you're very wary of using things that other people in that field have already used. So if you're designing a newspaper or a magazine, you don't want to use something that another magazine or newspaper has used, especially if it's quite similar. But we do, for example, when we did that newspaper in Portugal and we got the headline typeface was created bespoke. We combined that with a typeface, Giorgio Sands from commercial type, which it actually, they thought it was mainly going to be used in like fashion and retailing and stuff. It was a very stylized kind of highly condensed sans serif, but we threw that in with the one that had been designed for a newspaper and actually it worked brilliantly. So sometimes you find things that you're able to use for a purpose they weren't intended for. And that's always quite satisfying too. That feels like doing something new, even if it isn't. But, you know, if you're making a new newspaper or magazine, you don't really want to use an existing newspaper or magazine typeface because it might just make it look too much like something else. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, I've seen you sort of work here and the precision and mathematical <laughs> rigour that you bring to the design is, yeah. is sort of fascinating to see. And obviously, we can't go into a lot yeah. of detail, but it'd be really good just to get a little bit of an insight into how you start to approach that yeah. and why it's so important. Well, it's funny. One of the things when I'm interviewing young designers, I always ask, how's your maths? Because it's actually quite an important part of what we do. I think it started, it's all grown out of the newspaper and magazine work that I do, that basically all those things start on a grid. And when I started out, they used to be on pieces of cardboard, printed in blue, and you would be sticking things onto that grid. But you know, the grid defines the widths of the columns, the height of the page, and so on. But then the next level of sophistication is when you've decided what the text is going to look like, you put in another grid, a baseline grid, which is probably quite familiar to a lot of people from just working with desktop publishing programs and stuff. And we also like to put a grid in that aligns with the top of the text, because that means if you're placing a picture, you can hang it from the top and that lines up with the top of the text. So this kind of gritty thinking was embedded in my brain quite early on in my design career. And I, I just kind of carry that through into everything we do now. So when we're making a kind of canvas to work on whatever the, the final product, we tend to make grids that are based around all these things, that are based around the size of the text, the size of the display type. They tend to have a certain number of modules. So it might the page might be like 12 columns wide by 14 modules deep or something. And that gives you a kind of underlying architecture that the audience doesn't notice. But it means that if you're looking at something like Imagine, something like The Guardian, you know, a 10-section newspaper over the course of the week, it's probably got 20 or 30 different people doing layouts on it. It brings a kind of consistency 
throughout, even if it's not overt on the, on the top level. And that I think is pleasing to the audience. And, you know, it also gives us a way of sort of logically structuring information. So, and what was really interesting was when we, we did our first television project for RTL in the Netherlands, we did exactly the same thing. Working with the motion designers, you know, we decided what size all the typography on the screen was going to be. And then we made a baseline grid and a modular grid with 12 columns in exactly the same way and place all those elements. And I think, you know, why it's so useful to us is because, as, as we were saying earlier, what we really do most of now is design systems. We're creating systems that enable the staff of a magazine or a newspaper or a digital publication or a TV station to create a lot of stuff within a defined set of parameters. So the elements of the design system will be things like typefaces, colors, rules about how space is used, but also it'll be how those elements are placed on the canvas, whether the canvas is a mobile phone screen, a TV screen, or a magazine page. And you, you tend to start with, if you like, the, the body text. You would you yep. mention something about starting there. Is that where you yes. typically tend to start? Well, certainly with print and digital. That's where we tend to start. Um, because, you know, most of what we do is designed to be read on some level. You know, obviously imagery is incredibly important and motion and behavior is incredibly important. But most of the clients we're working with have things to say. And the first thing we have to do is make sure that they're readable. So the way that we approach everything we do really is to sort of get the technical stuff right at the very beginning. So we're deciding on, you know, things like text typesetting, because if you can't read that, the whole project fails. So readability of text and then relationships between text and other types of typography and also things like navigability, which is super important in digital, but also in things like a magazine or a newspaper, being able to find your way around. So all those kind of technical, almost engineering aspects of it are the things that we have to get right first. Um, and that process goes along almost independently, really, of the aesthetics. You know, it's not 100% independent because you have to choose a typeface for the text, for example. But, um, you know, those things, every project will fail if we don't get those right. So that's number one. And then, you know, all the other things about personality and spirit and emotional kind of projection and stuff come after that or, you know, at best alongside that. Yes, uh, that makes sense. And things like masthead, is that sort of like left? later in the process i usually try not to do that too early mainly just for the sake of the process because people get obsessed with them clients are obsessed with them changing them is traumatic and if you're not careful that can derail the whole conversation and the same thing with covers for magazines for example you know i always do the cover last and in a presentation i always present the cover last because if you show them the cover first, the whole thing just degenerates into a discussion about the cover and you never have any time or a clear head for people to look at everything else you've done, which is like 99% of the job. So, you know, obviously um, the masthead of a, a magazine or a newspaper uh, and which will probably appear on a website is super important because it's kind of the logo of the thing. So you can't ignore it but I try not to get bogged down in that conversation too early because it can just really interfere with everything else. So when I look at the list of, you know, I go on your site and I look at the list of publications that you've worked on you know, in the yeah. last 10 or so years, there's a lot of Euro different European yeah. countries you've worked with. You've worked with sort of a key, L'Express, Publico, Spanish, yeah. in Scandinavia. So working with those different languages, cultures, nationalities, how do you approach that? Does that influence what you're doing? It must do. Yeah, it very much does. Um, it influences in different ways. I mean, partly just working in those places is really different. The way people behave, I mean, your clients behave, the way the business behaves is very different. So, you know, in Scandinavia, because it's so embedded in their culture that they're kind of social democracies in which everyone is treated with respect, every project meeting tends to have like 20 people in it who are all allowed to say what they think. Uh, and, you know, 
I don't think that's great for projects actually, but it's a lovely environment to work in. So that's, that's sort of the payback. And then, you know, people in Northern Europe tend to be very kind of cool and professional, although the Dutch actually strangely are very forthright and, you know, really say what they think. If you're working in Spain or Italy, you hear a lot more raised voices. So there's that side of it, but also, you know, there still is, there are different expectations from different audiences. I think much less than there used to be, and I find this rather sad. There's a kind of international language of design now because, and I think that's largely to do with digital, not entirely because there's been brands like Nike and stuff, for example, which are international brands and they carry their brand language everywhere from, you know, Brazil to Malaysia. Apple looks the same everywhere. I think it's it's become more so since digital media have become part of our lives and particularly since mobile devices have become part of our lives because iOS and Android and, you know, the way they behave, everybody in the world experiences those. So there has been a kind of leveling down and a, a kind of ironing out of individual design cultures, which I find rather sad. But I always try and make an effort to understand the design culture of where I'm working. And for example, you know, if you're doing a magazine in Italy, people expect there to be more colors in there and more kind of elements and more kind of decoration. And if you're doing something in Sweden, people expect it to be more restrained and they can take minimal things much more because that's the kind of design culture they're used to in terms of architecture and furniture design and, and everything else. So there's that part of it. But also, you know, what I really love is when you're working somewhere that really has its own eccentricities. And strangely, I've no idea why this is, but I think France has the strangest kind of design culture in Western Europe. You know, if you look at the history of French graphic design, French typefaces, like the work of Roger Excoffon, these things like Antique Olive and stuff. And, um, you know, just weird, those tabac signs you see in the streets, those weird sort of elongated diamonds and stuff. So, you know, the projects that we've been lucky enough to do in France, I've tried to think like a French person. Uh, you know, I don't know whether I can really do that. There's a kind of, the danger is that it becomes a form of sort of cultural transvestism and I'm just pastiching their, their kind of design style. I'm, I'm very, very aware of that. But, you know, I did study languages at the university. I studied French and Spanish. I lived in Spain. I've lived in Italy. I have spent time in other places speaking other languages. So I do think that helps you kind of recalibrate your brain a bit. But, you know, we've also designed things in many languages that I don't speak, like Swedish and Portuguese and Catalan. And there you're really just relying on the fact that most of your clients speak English, which is good. And that, you know, in most cases, the important things are the same in terms of how people engage with information, how people read. Uh, and most of what we've done has been, you know, in Roman script, reading from left to right, never done anything in Arabic or Japanese or anything that would take another kind of conceptual leap. But no, we do try very hard to think about the environment we're designing for and to adapt what we do. And of course we have a style and we have an approach, but I like to think that when we do something, say in Spain, we don't just follow the same rules that we would follow in the Netherlands or Norway. Yeah. I also wanted to talk a little bit about collaboration. So obviously before everything that's happened, you were traveling around quite a bit, quite a small team you have, and you're not together as it were in the same no. studio. So I was just curious to know how you work, because of course yep. now everyone's working yep. <laughs> in the way that you've worked and how that impacts on the creative process with what you do. I mean, yeah, we were a bit ahead of our time and not, not really through design, but you know, even before the pandemic, we were working largely remotely, partly because we have international clients. So what would usually happen is I'd go meet them for a briefing meeting. Then we'd come back and work in London, where I used to work, and now in Bath. And um, we'd go back and do a presentation. And at key stages, you'd see people face-to-face, -face, but most of the work would be done in our location with a lot of email and, in those days, Skype calls and stuff. Um, and then I decided to move out of London, and I still had people working in London. So that was one stage of doing remote. And then my main designer just had a baby and decided to move to Scotland. So that was another day. So we were quite well prepared when all this came along. We were used to video calls and file sharing and Dropbox and all that stuff. So it didn't really sort of change what we do very much. 
Obviously, you lose something from not all being in the same space. And what you lose particularly, I think, are those kind of serendipitous moments when you're walking past somebody's computer and they've got something on the edge of the screen that they've already rejected that you say, oh, no, that's interesting. Can you try and develop that a bit? Or you see something in the bin that someone's thrown away that you like, or, you know, those moments don't happen when you're doing this kind of thing, which is a shame. But, you know, the payback on the other side is that people get to live where they want to live and spend more time with their families and they're happier and happy people do better creative work, I think. So, you know, it's, it, it's a, an odd sort of mixture. Really. But also, you know, apart from my team and the people that I work with, I do collaborate a lot. The core team is very small. And the reason for that is, well, it's just, just a way we've evolved of working, I suppose. I used to have more people. But what we tend to do now is put a team together for a particular project. So it's a bit like, you know, at the risk of making it sound much grander than it really is. I like to say that it's it's a bit like making a movie. You know, there's the director who's got the vision and is driving the whole thing along, but they're bringing in their script writers and their director of photography and their actors and their casting people, and they're putting together the right group to make this particular thing. And that's what we tend to do. So I've got my, my little team that I work with regularly. And then, you know, if we're doing a magazine project, I'll tend to bring in someone who's got a lot of magazine experience for doing digital projects. I'll bring in someone who's got more of a UX head or a digital mindset. The broadcast stuff that we've done was inevitably a collaboration with people who've got broadcast and motion experience because I'd never done anything like that before. So I just think that's a nice way to work. Um, it means you get to work with a lot of different people, which is great, so you never get bored. It means you always have the right expertise for each project. Uh, I'm not sure it's good business because you're paying a lot of subcontractors, so you don't get all the money that's coming in. But I feel like the results are better, and I enjoy it more. And you know, I particularly enjoy now at this stage of my career working with other really experienced creative directors. So you know, on some projects, I will just lead it and be the creative director, and I'll bring in people probably on you know on a slightly lower level to work with me. But quite a lot of the projects we've done, I've done with people who are pretty much as experienced as I am. And that's a whole other thing, really. I mean, the, the, the digital work that I've done, the broadcast work I've done with Dylan Griffith at Smorgasbord Studio. We did a great, uh, fun website with uh, Pablo Martin, who was at Atlas and is now creative director of Movie. I've done a lot with Simon Esterson, editorial jobs in the past. When you're working with people like that, it's a very different kind of process. And I find because I've been a kind of an art director and a creative director for so long and I've had my own studio and I've been the, the sort of top guy on a lot of magazines and stuff. It gets lonely after a while. You know, you're always the person making the big decisions. And, you, you know, if you've got the experience, most of those decisions are pretty good decisions. But it's good to have inputs from other people and to be able to bounce things around. Of course, you do that with your team. But doing it with somebody really experienced is, is very different. It's difficult sometimes because you have to compromise. You're so used to getting your own way and getting everything the way you want it. You have to be able to accept that the person you're working with might want it to be different and say, oh, okay, you can do it your way on this thing as long as I can do it my way on this thing. But, you know, you learn a lot from doing that. And like I said earlier, I just love learning new things from every project that I do. And I've been doing this a long time now. Uh, and the ability to keep learning things is really important to me. And that's why I like working with other people and doing collaborations. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I found on a couple of projects we've done where I've brought in, for example, a copywriter right yeah. at the very start of the project, you, you're working very closely together all the way through. So you're looking at the strategy and the messaging yeah. that comes with it. That's, it's really good because you're supporting each other all the way. Yeah. And it's... Uh, and, you know, I think no matter how brilliant you are, the best stuff comes out of bouncing ideas around mm. and iteration. Mm. So, you know, every, you know, I'm sure you've had these experiences where once in a blue moon, you have a brilliant idea for something and it turns out that it works and you just go ahead and do it. But most of the time it's like, try this, try this, try this. And then when other people come in and contribute ideas, everything gets better. And, you know, it took me a long time to learn that when I was a young designer, particularly when I first started getting jobs with an art director title where I thought I was 
you know, I was the guy. I used to be very firm about, no, I know what I'm doing. My solution is the correct solution. And I've learned quite painfully <laughs> to actually enjoy it when people push back and when clients push back, you know, as long as they're smart clients and we have a good relationship. If I show something to a client that I think is right and they say, actually, no, I don't think that's right. I've learned to enjoy that because it usually pushes me back and makes me explore another path. And most of the time, the other path turns out to be the right path. Uh, and I'm grateful to them for making their contribution. But yeah, it, it takes a while to get used to that, but it is important, I think. Mm. I often think clients know a lot about their business far yeah. more than you do about their business. So um, I think listening to the client, what they have to say is so important. So yeah, I mean, obviously they've, they've asked you in for a reason, Yeah, that you're an expert in your field. But, you know, I do feel sometimes when you see how designers talk about their clients, it's almost as if our role is to sort of play a trick on them so that we get what we want and they don't get what they want, which, you know, that's not the way to work with a client. They're very smart people. Uh, they've asked you to come in for a reason. You need to take the best of their knowledge, combine it with the best of your knowledge, and that's how you get a good result. So you talked about quite a few ideas there. So when you're presenting yes, and you're sort of saying, right, you, you've, you've done the strategy and you've formulated a sort of a, a plan and you think, it's, uh, I don't know whether you do a ta-da moment, but whether, when you go in and do that first thing, you're, yeah. the, the client's starting to see stuff. Yeah. Are you presenting a, this is my recommendation, or do you think, I think we need to be going down this sort of area, and you might present a, a few different approaches? It varies depending on the job, and it's sort of evolved. A lot of the work that we do, we just present one solution. And I think that tends to be because they're very big, complicated things that really it's just not realistic to put the resources into developing five different versions of a kind of 10 section newspaper because of all the, the stuff that you've spoken about, you know, the precision, the, the, the construction of it. You can't show somebody something realistic without doing a lot of that work. And, you know, when we do a magazine job, we tend to present pretty much a whole issue yeah. of a magazine, which involves doing all the grid work or, you know, it's an enormous amount of work. And unless they're prepared to pay you ridiculous amounts of money, you can't really develop four or five alternative options. Some of the things that we do, which are kind of smaller or more kind of um, self-contained, um, you can do it differently. Certainly when it's about kind of identities, you know, if you're looking at things like colors or, you know, a brand mark or something, it's much more realistic to explore different options. And we're lucky enough to have a couple of clients now we've been working with for a long time who I no longer feel I need to do that kind of walk into the room and do the grand reveal. I'm prepared to let them into my process and show them stuff that's not finished, show them sketches and see how they respond. You know, if you've got a good relationship with somebody, you can do that. And I think that's a great way to work, but I wouldn't do that with a client I don't know well, because you need to know that they're capable of understanding that it's a sketch and not criticizing it or dismissing it because of the lack of precision. But yeah, it really just depends on the, the process of a particular project. Mm. Lastly, I really wanted to talk about some more recent work. Yeah. And you've recently been working with the V&A and I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit more about a little bit more about that project. I know you can't perhaps reveal too much about it at the moment. But... No, well, it, it's in progress and some of it won't see the light of day probably for a couple of years. So I can't, I can't say everything, but no, it's a fascinating thing to do. And it's really great for us because it's a different field. You know, it's the culture sector. It's not media. But it, it's sort of surprising how many similarities there are between the environment I'm used to working in and their environment and, and what they need and what they want. Um, and I think that's probably why we got the job. It was put out to tender to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people put in proposals, but in the end, they decided to work with us. And I think that's partly because structurally, where they're at is not dissimilar to quite a few of the, the media clients that we've worked with. So, you know, the VNA is this great 
enormous museum in southwest London with an incredibly rich collection and a fantastic history. And then a couple of years ago, V&A Dundee opened in Scotland, which is a collaboration between V&A and the Scottish government and the local council and some universities in Dundee. So that, that was a new thing. They also have the Museum of Childhood in East London, and they're opening two new sites, building two new sites now on a new site in East London, which is going to be a new kind of culture hub uh, near the Olympic Stadium in East London. So there's going to be a new museum there and a new building for the v collections. So they've gone from being one big place in one location to in a few years, they will be many things in many locations, but the design system and brand identity that they're working with was brilliant, but was invented for another age when they were just this one big museum in, in Southwest London. So clearly they need something new that's going to adapt and allow them to be recognizable as an organization across all sites, but also allow each of the sites to have its own individual identity. And in a way, you know, it, it's a bit like a project like The Guardian, where there's a newspaper that has so many different sections and it's got a news section, it's got a sports section, there's a shiny magazine on a Saturday, there's web, there's, there's podcasts, so many different things which each have their own sub-identity, but they also have to be recognizable as part of one thing. So I think that was one of the reasons that they felt that our experience was relevant to them. The other is about form and content. Really. And, you know, this is very much the essence of editorial design. What people are coming to you for is the content. It's the stories, the ideas, the people in the magazine or on the screen. And our work is about building an environment around the content that gives shape to it and is recognizable as a brand, but that doesn't interfere with the content and get in the way of the content. And the museum very much has to do that too. You know, if you're communicating with a museum audience, what you want them to see is content. You know, what is the exhibition? What's in our collections? Why should I go to the museum? But around that, design has to create a, a recognizable environment and a recognizable brand that makes you think not just that exhibition looks interesting. I want to go and see an exhibition about David Bowie, but also, oh, it's V&A Dundee. They do cool stuff. I want to go to the NA Dundee. So balancing those two things up is something that we're very, very familiar with. Oh, fascinating. When do, when do you think, can you give <laughs> any indication of when things might, we might be able to see some of your... Yeah, next year, bits of it will start to come out and then the new sites will open over the following years. So it's really about building a foundation for something that's going to continue to grow into the future. Okay. And then... Talking of the future, I mean, I, I guess two questions, really. What do you see as the future of magazines, newspapers, editorial? Obviously, it's in the digital side. But what, yeah. do you see is, what do you see happening with that? And then also, what for you do you see happening in the future? Well, I think, you know, this has been going, the debate about the future of publishing has been going on for a long time. And, you know, print was declared dead 20 years ago and still hasn't died. So that's good. I mean, realistically, most of the people we work with, and they tend to be large mass media people, you know, major newspapers, major broadcasters and stuff, their audience is increasingly digital. So it's moved from print to online, particularly on the phone. And for TV, it's moved from linear broadcast TV to on demand. So we have to adapt to that. But the, we've been on that journey with the clients. So we're completely at home doing digital design and designing for an on-demand environment. So to that extent, you know, the work is still there. We still have something to contribute and we still enjoy doing it. But there is something still special for us about print. And print publications, even if most of their audience has moved online, print is still important, more importantly, you would think from maybe looking at the figures of how many copies they're selling because for something with a history that evolved in print, like a newspaper like The Guardian or a magazine like, say, New Statesman, print is a, a sort of emblem of who they are. It's not just about 
the physical experience and some people will always want the physical experience you know i prefer to read a magazine on paper if i can if i haven't got a copy of it and there's an article i want to read i'll read it on my phone but it's also just about the kind of resonance of print the fact that it's a physical object it's still somehow always at the heart of these kind of companies and the way the audience sees an organization like that even if the day-to-day experience is mainly digital the print kind of has to be there uh, almost as a kind of symbol, a kind of statement of their values, who they are and what they care about. So I think the print will always be there playing that role. Designing print will always be important, but certainly for the industry and for us, you know, the future is much more about digital expressions and adapting to new platforms. Great. Well, look, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Fascinating to hear all those stories. No, thank you for asking me to come along. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to make or create something of your own. And be sure to click on the subscribe button so you don't miss a conversation. If you would like to know more about our Makers Project, check out our website, madeinbath.co.uk. Or if you would like to know more about our design work, go to Mitton Williams, that's M-Y-T-T-O-N, williams.co.uk. See you next time.